From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today on The Public Morality, our focus is baseball. With opening day upon us, we will talk with two chroniclers of America's pastime, George Mitrovich and Michael Long. And after that, I will have a special closing remarks about the signing of North Carolina's controversial HB2. That's coming up on The Public Morality. As the 2016 baseball season begins, I, like so many others, greet this time of year with anticipation. Opening day in baseball transforms its legion of fans into prisoners of hope, if only for a day. We will dedicate the entire show to baseball, beginning with George Mitrovich, chair of the great Fenway Park Writers Series. George Mitrovich, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you, sir. It's a pleasure and an honor to be your guest. Um, why don't we just begin by explaining why so many, and myself included, look forward to opening day with the enthusiasm of a child on Christmas morning? Well, I think opening day in baseball is the most special moment in sports. I think the March Madness, NCAA basketball, is the greatest ongoing series in sports, but nothing nothing is like opening day. And part of the, the witness to that is the fact that every team sells out on opening day, whether or not withstanding. It's just it's just a great it's a great moment. And a couple of years ago at Petco Park in San Diego, I took a young Navy lieutenant pilot who flew jets, a woman who flew jets, as my guest to the opening game because my wife couldn't go, so she was willing to go with me. But there was a I, there was a stipulation, which was I was going to wear a tux and a Hamburg, so I needed her to wear a gown, which she did. And the whole purpose was to do for opening day at, at Petco Park or at any other park to dress it up, to make it more like opening day at the races in Del Mar, for instance. <laughs> I have to say it didn't work. <laughs> People are still going, and at least at Petco Park, are still going to open game in shorts and flip-flops. So uh, that was that was a serious attempt, but it, it went nowhere. You would have been better off doing that at AT&T because the weather in San Francisco is a little cooler, and so there would be less people uh, wearing flip-flops and shorts, and so you, you might have started another trend at AT&T. <laughs> I think that would absolutely have happened because San Francisco is, let's face it, San Diegans won't like it, but San Francisco is a far more fashionable place than San Diego. Well, let me ask you this. Before I, before I go to another question, what is the Great Fenway uh, Park Rider Series? The Great Fenway Park Rider Series, now in its 14th year or 13th year, is the only literary series ever sponsored by any professional sports team. And it happened because I'm also the president of the City Club of San Diego, which is a public forum of 40 years standing, and the Denver Forum City Club Sister Organization in Colorado, which has been in existence for 31 years. So this is what I do with my life. I invite people, everyone from presidents to plumbers, to come and and talk if they've got something interesting to say. And Larry Lucchino, the Red Sox president, uh, we had formed a friendship in San Diego when I chaired the citizens' effort to convince our citizenry to pass a measure to get a new ballpark built downtown, which was hugely successful. 59.7 was the vote. And when Lucchino went to Boston and Charles Steinberg and Theo Epstein and Mike D and Sam Kennedy and Sarah McKenna and everybody else followed him, uh, I came along mostly, however, to uh, work with Charles Steinberg in, in holding the first Jackie Robinson birthday tribute, January 31 of 2003. Uh, the Red Sox are also the only team that does the Jackie Robinson tribute. And the reason for that is that the Red Sox had a really terrible racist history. And the new ownership led by John Henry, Tom Horner, and Larry Lachino, and the rest of the new team wanted to change that dynamic. It just made sense to transition into into the writers series. In the first year or so, we did nothing but baseball writers. But then Lachino said, look, let's expand this so we 
we did, and we've had Justice Breyer of the Supreme Court, Bill Bradley, Bill Keller, the executive editor of the New York Times, Kathleen Kennedy, uh, one of Bobby and Ethel's eldest daughter. We've had Elizabeth Warren, um, Anita Diamond, uh, who is a, a great, great novelist, uh, Lynn Scher, who did a book about Sally Ride. So um, it's, it's just been a great thing. Now, staying with the just the Red Sox for a moment, help me with this history, but the Red Sox were actually the last team to sign yep. a Negro player. Am I correct about that? Yep. Twelve years after Jackie started, um, the Red Sox signed Pumpsy Green. And to go back to the Jackie Robinson birthday tribute, when Jackie, in 1945, Jackie was invited to have a tryout with the Red Sox at Fenway Park. It was in response to a black city councilman who was pressuring Tom Yaki to do something about this. And uh, But Jackie, look, Jackie was incredibly smart. He knew it was a bogus tryout, and they had no intentions of signing him. Uh, you'll also find it interesting, Brian, that they passed on Willie Mays. Their scout said of Willie Mays, he couldn't hit a curveball. Oh, my gosh. I hope that scout lost his job. Just, just for I that. Certainly, just... <laughs> I certainly hope he did lose his job. Just, just for he that report alone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we, the thing about Jackie is it's hugely important and significant. I also started the process with Senator Kerry and Senator McCain and Richie Neal and Peter King on the House side uh, to get Jackie the Congressional Gold Medal, which was finally presented to Rachel Robinson, Jackie's widow, in a great, great ceremony in the rotunda of the Capitol in March of 2005, presented by President Bush. But, Brian, when you think about it, that was 57 years after Jackie had debuted. So why did it take that long to get him the gold medal? I don't, I don't know. But we finally did it. You know, I have long held the belief, largely because of um, Ken Burns' first documentary on baseball, that... Jackie Robinson and Babe Ruth are the two most important players for the game. How, how do you see it? I, I totally agree. Uh, I've also said about Jackie that I think he's the most important African-American in our history. Now, people want to hold out for Martin Luther King or for um, uh, any number of other uh, people, Thurgood Marshall, for instance, on the Supreme Court. But as the great Buck O'Neill, Byron, who you know and loved as I knew and loved, um, uh, president of the Negro Leagues Museum, Buck was a guy who first pointed out to me and to everyone else he came into contact with that before uh, Martin Luther King Jr., before the civil rights marches in the South, before Rosa Parks, uh, before Brown v. the Board of Education, before Thurgood Marshall went on the Supreme Court, and before President Truman, believe it or not, desegregated the military, there was Jackie Robinson, all beginning, you know, April 15th. 1947. So he was huge. And, in, 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 you know, the other part about Jackie that people forget, Jackie was a four-sport star at UCLA, track, basketball, uh, baseball, and football. In fact, in track for a very long time, he, hit, he held the NC2A broad jump record. And, and, I, and I will also make this claim. Jackie Robinson was the greatest athlete in American history. And then on top of everything else, he was one smart guy. And I know, you've, I know you've interviewed Michael Long, and Michael has become kind of the resident uh, uh, authority about Jackie. He's done several books about him. He's working on a third. And the book that he did about the letters that Jackie wrote to different you know, people in politics and government because he was concerned about this issue or that speaks volumes about his intelligence. And in fact, uh, since you mentioned Michael Long, he's actually going to be my second guest tonight because I'm ha- I promised him we did a, a thing on Bayard Rustin uh, right. several months ago about the letters. And so when I told him when baseball season started, because he's also in the latest Ken Burns documentary, that we were going to have him back on. So I, I have the pleasure of having you and Michael Long on on the same day. Well, thank you. Michael is a very special guy. You know, I want to. I just want to stay with Jackie Robinson for just a minute because it, it just occurred to me that, again, sort of um, alluding to the Ken Burns documentary, that to your point about Jackie Robinson perhaps being the most important African-American sort of is bolstered by the fact that baseball sort of runs this parallel course with the history of America. So we can, at least in the 20th century, so we can look at baseball and kind of just see where the nation was at. And maybe baseball was ultimately just a couple steps ahead of the rest of the nation. Baseball indeed was, and and it's all because of 
you know, Branch Rickey having the courage, the moral courage, and it was a moral issue for Branch Rickey to sign Jackie. And uh, since you and I have some knowledge of the Methodist Church, it's uh, important to uh, to understand that one of the factors in Branch Rickey's signing of Jackie was that he knew that Jackie had been raised a Methodist when uh, Jackie grew up in, uh, in Pasadena, California, and that it was a Methodist minister who got Jackie away from the gangs, had a huge impact on his life, and, uh, and that uh, when Branch met Jackie and wanted to get a sense of him, uh, which you see in the movie 42, and which Arnold Samperhan, the great Stanford historian uh, who wrote, I think, the definitive book about Jackie's life, and he goes into great detail about this part of it, which the secular press has really never paid any attention to, but I, I think the two of us understand how important it is. Oh, absolutely. Uh, now I'm going to switch back to the actual sport of baseball itself, and this is just your prediction, your speculation. Will the National League eventually acquiesce to the dreaded, I'm just giving my bias there, to the dreaded designated hitter? No, I, I think they should, because I think we need uniformity in the sport. And I'm not, look, I, you know, I think you know I still play baseball. I'm 80 years of age, but I still play baseball, and I play reasonably well. And I'm thrilled to be able to do that. And I've been going to baseball games since May 20th. A Thursday night in 1942 at Lane in San Diego. The Padres really closely were playing the Hollywood Stars. My starting pitcher for um, Hollywood, uh, for the Padres, rather, was a guy named Ed Bidelich, fellow third. My dad wanted me to know that Serbs could play baseball. So I've been, <laughs> baseball, has been <laughs> baseball has been a part of my life for, um, what is that, 73 years. And not just a part. I mean, I was a guy who read every copy of sports, sport magazine. I read every uh, weekly issue of the sporting news, not just read it, Byron. I read it from cover, from the front page to the back page. I even read the box scores of the D-Leagues, which the sporting news carried. Um, so, you know, you could say, well, you're not a traditionalist. Well, I am a traditionalist. I've said emphatically baseball is America's game. Nothing else comes close to it. It's, it's a part of our history. And baseball was big before anyone knew about pro football or pro basketball. And ice hockey, the pro game, was, you know, was six teams, right? Right. Um, and, and, and now we have 30 baseball teams, and I think, there should, I think there should be uniformity. I don't need to see pitchers hit. I mean, one of the last great pitchers who also was a great hitter was Don Drysdale. Right. I think one year Don Drysdale had something like seven home runs and hit about 350 for the Dodgers. It always reminds me, Byron, of one of those little great moments about baseball that we truly, truly love. And that is Hoyt Wilhelm. Remember him, I remember, the baller? I remember Hoyt Wilhelm, so the remember, I know. I remember, remember of him. Okay, so here's the deal. The first time he ever bats in the major leagues, he hit a home run. He never hit another home run. And he pitched for, what, 21, 22 yeah, years? something like that, yeah. So those are the kinds of things about baseball that when, when you love the game, you just love those, those little, little facts. So, but but I'm, look, I'm, I'm good with having uniformity. I'm good with National League and American League having the same, uh, the same uh, where, where hitters, uh, where pitchers don't, don't bat. But, but I'm also okay if you don't want to change it. It's <laughs> not something worth getting terribly upset about. Well, George, you can appreciate being a lifelong San Francisco Giant fan. I, I kind of like the idea of Madison Bumgarner coming up to hit these days. So you, I think you can, you can, uh, you can sympathize well, with me. Gardner, <laughs> okay, I can see that. I, I don't mind. But hey, Listen, he could always be a pinch hitter. How that's, dramatic would that be? No, that's, that's true. That's true. Now, on a more serious topic, has baseball reconciled the steroid era, in your opinion? Is there something left open? Well, I, I, yes. But, again, I, I may, maybe I'm just the odd guy out or odd man or whatever. Um, the thing about steroids that I found the most upsetting and concerning was that young athletes were going to start taking steroids. Kids in high school, maybe, you know, middle school, were going to start taking steroids without knowing from a scientific medical point of view what the long-term effects are. I will tell you uh, of a conversation that I had with Theo Epstein when he was with the Red Sox 
general manager, and it was a late August game on a Saturday at Fenway Park, hot, humid. I was up in Larry Lucchino's box just myself to get a bite to eat. Theo came in, sat down, and we had a really long conversation, and it was really interesting, Theo being Theo and a very, very smart guy. And he was talking about Randy Johnson, and he was saying, how is it that Randy Johnson who was throwing in uh, the low 90s at the beginning of the season here in the middle of August or late August and throwing in the middle to high 90s. How, how is that possible? And he, Theo, said that I don't know who's using steroids in our clubhouse. We have no way of testing for that. And uh, not steroids, but H- HGH. H- right. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I should have clarified that. So, I think they now have figured figured that that out. But all of that being said, I don't look. If, if, when it comes to the Baseball Hall of Fame, um, I, I just don't. I think players have to be judged on what their records are, and not on other things. You know, I think Pete Rose belongs in the Hall of Fame, and. There are a lot of people, Byron, you know this. There are people in the Hall of Fame who were wife abusers, child beaters. We all knew Gaylord Perry was throwing spitballs. That was no secret. Right. <laughs> so there's just this incredible double, triple standard that, that some of the baseball writers have, and um, I don't like it. And the other thing I don't like, by the way, is the Hall of Fame. You know it's, it's owned by a private family? I didn't know that. I did not know yeah. that. And, and that makes utterly, utterly no sense. Everybody says to me, oh, come on, Mr. Mitch, you're a great family. I have no doubt. doesn't change the equation. The Hall of Fame should be owned by baseball, not by a private family. Boy, I, I did not know that. Um, uh, in, in spite of all of that, what is, uh, in your opinion, the overall state of the game right now? Well, I, the hard truth of the state of the game is that the average salary of a major league player is over um, $3 million a year. The minimum salary is $507,000. There is this enormous separation that's taken place, I believe, between players and fans. You know Roger Kahn and the great sports writer Mm -hmm. and author who did The Boys of Summer which about the Brooklyn Dodgers, which I will always believe is the greatest book ever written about sports. Sports Illustrated said the, uh, uh, the sweet science, uh, A.J. Liebling's book about boxing was the greatest, but they put uh, the boys of summer second. But I disagree with SI, not for the first time, and it won't be for the last. <laughs> but uh, Roger Kahn, uh, who I've gotten to know quite well, he's in his 90s, living upstate New York, wonderful guy, um, who was very, very close to Jackie Robinson, loved Jackie. Jackie loved him in return. But when he wrote The Boys of Summer, he was writing for the New York Herald Tribune, which is, then, as you remember, or know by history, a very great newspaper. And he was making $12,000 a year, right? Mm-hmm. So he said Jackie and Duke Snyder and Pee Wee Reese and Carl Ferrillo and Gil Hodges and Roy Campanella and, and Carl Erskine and Spider Jorgensen um, – they were making fourteen to 16000 And he said, we were all friends. We lived in the same neighborhoods. We carpooled together. Our families did things together. And, and as you know, players had to work in the offseason. Right. Um, right. I think Carl Farilla was a postman somewhere in Pennsylvania. And they were all a part of us. And then, and, but as Roger Kahn correctly points out, they're now all millionaires. They don't hang out with sports writers. They don't hang out with people like you or me, Byron, probably. No, no, definitely not with me. (laughs) And so I don't know where this goes. I mean, somebody a heck of a lot smarter than me has to figure out. uh, There's got to be a breaking point. It just can't keep going up, 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 up. You know, since since you raised that, and and I'm not, uh, I'll take two players uh, to uh, as my examples. Um, I, I think Jason Hayward. Uh, is, is a good ball player. I think he's a very good ball player. I, right. don't, I don't know if his numbers bear out nearly a quarter of a billion dollars. I just don't know if his numbers bear that out. I mean, I wouldn't think so. I mean, look at the Red Sox. They've, they've benched Pablo Sandoval. Well, that was my other player, so go right ahead. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, I, it, it, and that was a very, bad, a very bad decision to sign him. And I believe that one of the reasons that 
that uh, Ben Charrington is no longer the general manager is because of that of that decision. Um, it just you know it didn't it it hasn't worked out. And I wasn't I mean Peter Abrams of the Boston Globe was also puzzled by the signing, pointing out that in the three previous years before Pablo came to the Red Sox, his numbers had gone down for the Giants. So what was what was the deal? I don't. It's just it's so much money and and you know I know they. It's not as if the owners wind up losing it all because they've got healthy insurance clause or policies that, that, that will get them through. But I, it, I don't know. I don't like it. Well, I do, I do think, George, um, I remember the last time uh, when I was still living in the Bay Area, I took my son to a game uh, at AT&T. We sat in right field, and uh, with, just before we bought anything to eat, which is a prerequisite when you take your child to a game, um, we were already out $44 to sit in right field. Right. Well, and, and, and look, it's true. I don't know. You know, I'm, an, I'm a guy who runs two nonprofit organizations. Um, I try to get by. Uh, I'm not a guy who makes a lot of money. So I, I, maybe I'm more painfully aware of how difficult this is for people. I mean, to be able to go to a ball game, just to a ball game. I mean, one of the great things that Lakino did in San Diego was to create the Park at the Park, which is a beautiful park uh, beyond left in uh, center field. And it's, a, I think, about a five-acre park. And you can sit there for, I don't know, a dollar, five dollars. The Colorado Rockies and what they call the rock pile above center field, you can go to a game there for two or three bucks. And but not very many baseball teams are doing that. I mean, my point is when Tom Garfinkel was the president of the Padres, now the president of the Miami Dolphins, he became a very good friend. And I, you know, I believe as Dennis Jewell, the the uh, president emeritus or chairman of the of the Los Angeles Angels at Anaheim, who who was a fantastic guy, great marketing guy. But he he believes, and and I totally embrace this, and I think. Tom Garfinkel was moving in that direction, which is better to have 35,000 people in the ballpark at half price than 20,000 at full price, right? Right, right, right. But that's not the way it's it's seen. And here's something you probably haven't thought about when they when they built when they spent over two billion dollars for Yankee Stadium, the new Yankee Stadium. Do you realize that the center, the out, the bleacher seats? They have no backs to them. Well, I didn't know that. Right. And I didn't know that either until I was because I'm in San Diego. I watched the Red Sox, and it was 2 a.m. in New York. It was a long, long game, lots and lots and lots of rain. Was that the 18-inning game? Was that that, that game? Was that right. That? Yeah, I remember, right. I remember but that Nesson, game. Nesson stayed with it, and you would see these. There was nobody at Yankee Stadium. So when you saw shots of the, of the bleachers, I was absolutely shocked shocked that there was no backs to the bleacher seats. A cost-saving measure. <laughs> Just ridiculous. And that's when they were asking, what, $2,000 to, to sit behind home plate? Yes, yes. Well, before I let you go, last thing. That now, um, it won't hold you to this, but give me a prediction. <laughs> well, I've made a mistake of telling you that in 2013, the day after the final season, I actually predicted everything that would happen. <laughs> uh, I also, and I did, and I it, it's on. I put it on Facebook. I put it in my baseball notes. Right. So, that, and, uh, so you, you should tell your listeners, by the way, that if they want to receive uh, my baseball notes, um, all they have to do is I don't know, go to the Fenway Park Writers FenwayParkWriters.org, and they'll find my email is uh, um, FenwayParkWriters at Gmail, and I'll be happy to add them to the list. But what I said on that Monday after the season was over. Was the Red Sox would beat Tampa, Detroit would beat the Athletics, the Red Sox would beat the Tigers in six, the Angels, not the Angels, the Dodgers would beat Atlanta, the Cardinals would beat Pittsburgh, uh, the Cardinals would beat Los L.A., the Dodgers, in six games, and the Red Sox would beat uh, the Cardinals in six games, and the sixth game would be at Fenway Park, and I flew to Boston that day to see my problems. But that was that was that was That's pretty, pretty good. good. That's pretty good. Um, I don't. But but when I particularly Lakino, who is as 
you know, Princeton Yale guy, but is incredibly superstitious. So he, when when they asked me, tell me what's going to happen, I, I just, I can't do that. I mean, that was just something I felt over, I was just kind of over the spirit. Let's talk about the spirit moved me to write that. Okay, no all right, to... you get a pass. I got it, I understand. Right. But, but I think that, but just about the Sox, I think I think the Sox will win the American League um, East. I don't see the East is as strong as they've been in in, in recent memory. Do you see it? No, that? but the thing is, Byron, that the last year they were riding a lot. Even the Boston sports writers, who I think are among the best anywhere, I mean, they were writing about how weak the American League East was. And I, 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 I took great exception to that. On what basis? Well, I just look at the record. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's right there. I don't I don't know why the baseball writers who th- this is what they do with their life. I don't know why they didn't do the same thing, which was to look at the records and to see how the American League East compared with the other with the other divisions. And and they were they were fine. I can't off the top of my head re- remember how much better. But I I think I proved at least to myself convincing. I convinced myself that it was the league was better than they thought. Well, as you know, I'm a Giants fan, and and the, each time the Giants won the World Series this decade, they were the underdog. So, and so here's something you don't know about the Giants. All right, let's find out. Let's see. Okay, Bruce Boshi. What did Bruce Boshi say about George Mitrovich after I, I played? I, after I had played in his fantasy camp, I do not know what Bruce. He Boshi. said I was the best second baseman he had ever. Seen. Ah. <laughs> He actually said that at a lunch honoring Bill Walton. Of course, he was. He, was, he wasn't serious, but hey. No, that's a that's a quote. You've got to tag that when you're at the bottom of your email. Yeah, that's <laughs> got to be that's got to be your tag, George. The best uh, second baseman Bruce Boshi's ever saw. Hey, yeah. I like it. Yeah. I can go with. You got to tag that, George <laughs> Mitrovich. It's been an honor and a pleasure to have you on the public morality today, sir. Well, have me back. It was great. Fun Absolutely, you're a wonderful guy. Thank Absolutely, you, well, definitely so, have you back. And tell my friend Michael Long hello. I certainly will. Yep. All right. Bye-bye. That was George Mitrovich. Stay tuned as we continue our focus on baseball with Professor Michael Long. Continue our discussion on baseball. We will speak with Michael Long. Long is an associate professor of religious studies and peace and conflict studies at Elizabethtown College and is the author and editor of several books on civil rights, religion, and politics. He also recently served as an expert for the Ken Burns documentary on Jackie Robinson. Michael Long, welcome to The Public Morality. Byron, it's great to be with you, and I just read your new editorial in the Winston-Salem about discrimination against the LGBT folks. So well done. Thanks for that. Thank you so much. Uh, in fact, we're going to be doing a um, – my closing remarks tonight will be um, specifically around that legislation. So Great. Um, I, as a, I just had George Mitrovich on, and I will pose mm-hmm. a similar question to you. Why, in your view, is opening day in baseball such a real – realistic, real, ritualistic, rather, uh, a component, and no other sport rivals it. Yes, I'm sure George has a better answer for that. He has a greater sense of the grand sweep of uh, baseball in U.S. history, I think, than I do. Uh, but I will say it's America's game. I still believe that in many ways. Why that's the case, I'm not exactly sure, but I do know that baseball has played a major role in breaking down barriers between people. And I really love that about uh, baseball. And it reflects the commitment of the American people to democracy. Uh, So in some ways, Baseball is a really democratic game. I don't know if George talked about that. I thought no, you always found. No, Go ahead. No, he did not. You're you're on new terrain here. <laughs> oh, good to hear. But I do think that uh, the history of baseball, at least from the 40s on, uh, reflects America's commitment to democratic principles, and it has done that in ways that other sports hasn't, especially early on. And so I'm very grateful for baseball's commitment to democratic principles starting in 1947 and moving on with some ferocity since then. Since you mentioned that random year, 1947, uh, let us, uh, you recently uh, filmed a documentary with Ken Burns. 
And why don't you tell us about that, Doctor? Wow. First, uh, the experience of being filmed uh, for an interview for the Ken Burns documentary was just delightful. And it was about a two-and-a-half-hour interview held in New York City. And I will tell you, that experience was more grueling than defending my dissertation at Amory University down here, you guys. <laughs> uh, and, it also, and, and that experience, Byron, really reflected for me uh, the quality of Ken Burns' documentaries through the years. I've seen... Uh, just snippets of the documentary at this point, but I will tell you that what I have seen breaks new ground, and we will learn some surprising things about Robinson. Well, why, no, don't we, why don't we start? The documentary is about. Okay, the documentary is about Jackie Robinson's life and legacy. And so it runs the whole gamut of Robinson's life uh, from his birth in Georgia up to his uh, death in 1972. And while a lot of it focuses on, on uh, Robinson's baseball career, that second episode uh, is really my area of special interest. And, that ref- and, and that's about his commitment to civil rights and his identity as an informal civil rights leader, as Rachel Robinson describes her husband. And um, not only do you have an interest in civil rights, but you also have an interest in letters. Right. So, and you also have an interest in Jackie Robinson and letters. Would you like to talk about that? <laughs> sure. My first book on Robinson is called First Class Citizenship, The Civil Rights Letters of Jackie Robinson. And believe it or not, it came about when I was studying uh, this alliance between Richard Nixon and Billy Graham. And I'd gone to the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in California uh, to look at that subject a little more. And while I was there, an archivist came out and he said to me, Mike, have you seen the Jackie Robinson file? Ooh, no, I hadn't. So he brought it out, and it was this fire, and it was this rich trove of letters between Nixon and Robinson. The two had met in 1952, and they continued correspondence up to Robinson's death in 1972. But that's how I became interested in Robinson's life, through this back door of his correspondence with Richard Nixon. And then one thing led to another, and I started searching his Robinson's letters throughout uh, the United States. And Rachel Robinson was really kind enough to let me publish that book, uh, mostly because I think of her commitment to advancing her husband's legacy as a civil rights leader. Uh, but yes, and letters are really my special area of interest, and Jackie Robinson's letters are incredibly exceptional to read. They're a lot of fun. He writes with fury and passion, and just, as, just as he was on the baseball diamond. You know, um, let, 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 let's... I'm going to ask you to just speculate um, mm-hmm. for just a moment. Uh, many, it, it, many have concluded or suggested that um, Robinson, at the time uh, he integrated baseball, was not the best player in the Negro Leagues. Mm. Um, some have said that, but if right. if Robinson was not the best player, uh, um, here's why I'm asking you to speculate. Assuming that momentarily, yeah. how would history might have differed if, say, Satchel Paige was <laughs> the first Negro player to play in the major leagues? <laughs> oh, man, Byron, I, you are setting me up. I'm having – this is what we do. We have fun here. This is, you know, I just <laughs> – Well, let me back up and say All right. I love the speculative question. I have no idea what the answer would be, <laughs> but I will say this. You know, when Ricky looked at Robinson, uh, he looked not only at Robinson's stats, uh, he also looked at Robinson's character. He looked at Robinson's history. He looked at Robinson's uh, relationship with Rachel. And he really developed a comprehensive view of this young man. He wanted to shatter uh, Major League Baseball's color barrier. And I think it's true. I think it's fair to say that Robinson was not the best player in the Negro Leagues, but he was certainly, uh, when you look at the whole picture, uh, arguably the strongest uh, in terms of not only his baseball playing abilities, but also his character and his commitment uh, to advancing first-class citizenship for all. I think Ricky saw that. Ricky also saw that and this is not a point to slight in any way because it's often overlooked. Ricky also saw Robinson's uh, faith and his commitment to principles, the principles of Jesus that were about equality and justice. And Ricky, as a Methodist, really resonated. You know, Robinson grew up a Methodist, as a matter of fact, in California, and, uh, and Ricky was a Methodist as well. And I think they felt a close alignment on that. 
Uh, wow, there were a whole lot of factors that went into Ricky's decision uh, when he was looking at Robinson in particular. And, and, and for Rich, I mean, let's just talk about Branch Ricky for just a moment. Yeah. Uh, for Branch Ricky, th- this was, is it fair to say this was just more than integrating baseball for him? I think it was, I think it's really fair to say that. So when people look at Ricky's decision, some of the cynics say that it was mostly about money and about selling more tickets. And other people say that it was about his uh, commitment to integration. Uh, but there were a lot of other factors at play. And, and one of the key factors was Brooklyn, New York. I mean, the demographics there really served uh, shattering the color barrier really well. And uh, remember, Ricky was at St. Louis at one point, and he didn't find integration, uh, the practice of integration, to be something that St. Louis would warm up to. Brooklyn, on the other hand, really came around. So it was a matter of location. It was a matter of timing. So there are people on Ricky's back. You know, the communist press is on Ricky's back. Uh, the African-American newspaper writers are on Ricky's back, uh, so to speak. And they're all pushing him to bring an African-American into Major League Baseball. So it's not as if he just sat around and thought this idea up because of his commitment to principles or his commitment to money. He was also being pushed. Uh, and that's not a small thing to overlook as well. Let's give credit where credit is due, mm-hmm. and especially the black, the historically black newspapers, uh, and the newspaper writers, sports writers, were played a really key role. And uh, I think you know, Brad and Tricky gets a lot of credit, and that is absolutely true. But wow, those early journalists, Byron, and you know them, and I know them, played a really key role. You're absolutely right, those unsung heroes, if you will, Mm -hmm. of pushing and prodding, probably at a time that we now, in hindsight, can have the luxury of taking for granted. But it may not seem like writing about integrating the first Negro player is radical stuff, but in 1945, 46, it is radical stuff. Oh, it's unheard of, right? Uh, in the white press, especially. Well, except the communist press. Right. <laughs> we have to give credit <laughs> and they to don't, communists. And they don't count. They don't count. Not, <laughs> you know, you know that's, that's the discourse, right? Right, right. yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, yeah, that was radical stuff. And remember, it was America's game. And so to integrate America's game would change, and indeed it did, the face of the United States. And Martin Luther King Jr. knew and said that he stood on the shoulders of Jackie Robinson, and he was so right about that. And King said that uh, Robinson was a sit-inner before there were sit-ins. You know, he boycotted before there were boycotts. So, I mean, he just went on. And King admired Robinson so much, and the admiration went back. Robinson also admired King quite a bit, though the two differed significantly on several issues. Uh, they were really heroes to each other. Mm-hmm. But, but King was really good about recognizing Robinson as a pioneering civil rights uh, leader. Any thoughts... Um Changing gears ever so slightly, mm-hmm. um, how do you see the game today in baseball? Any, th- any thoughts about that? I think those of us who uh, pay attention to Jackie Robinson's life and legacy wish there were more African Americans playing baseball. Uh, certainly, people of color are in Major League Baseball in, in ways that they could never have been before Robinson, right? But that's always a lament. Uh, of those of us who who really are trying to advance Robinson's legacy. I also wish, Byron, that more players would act the way Robinson acted. And, that, and by that, I mean this. Robinson used his celebrity status, and we have to remember that he was sort of like Oprah in his day. Now, everybody knew Robinson. And he used his celebrity status to advance civil rights to advance first-class citizenship, to fight for freedom and equality and justice. And I, when I look at the game, Byron, I wish many other players were doing what Robinson did and without having to have that written in their contract. You know, sometimes when players go out to the community and do community work, that's part of their contract obligations. Damn, that's a shame. I wish that they would follow Robinson and see him as a role model on this particular point. Well, what, what, I hear, what I hear you saying, Michael, is that honoring Jackie Robinson is a lot more than um, every April 15th, everybody wears number 42. 
Right. Oh, my goodness, yes. Though that, I have to tell you, that's a wonderful thing. It really is. And I hope it inspires people to look at Robinson, not only on the baseball diamond, but also off the baseball diamond, beyond the baseball diamond. But yeah, it is a lot more than just wearing 42. And, you know, the other thing I want to emphasize is that when we look at Robinson's uh, baseball career, we have to remember that while he excelled, and he did indeed, you know, 333, right? Baseball average over the course of his lifetime, and what, 19 stolen home plates, and so forth. It was a Baseball Hall of Fame career. That's tough enough to accomplish, but he accomplished that under incredible pressure. This is a man who went out to the baseball diamond thinking that maybe somebody's in the stadium who wants to shoot me today. He got death threats. You know, he was operating under incredible pressure from uh, opposing players and managers and coaches. And so those Baseball Hall of Fame stats cannot be read as we read other players' stats. This was a man who went went into the diamond, stood at home plate, uh, danced between third base and home plate, uh, feeling incredible pressure and threats against his life. Wow. And he still, still... Uh, put together a Hall of Fame career. And, and you could also add to that, he started, had Jackie Robinson been a white player, he probably would have been in the league maybe eight to ten years earlier than when he actually got in. Oh, my gosh, yeah. And I think his stats would have been even higher. Right. Um, there's, I don't think there's any doubt about that. So, wow, when I look at Robinson's baseball career, I mean, it's breathtaking thinking that he put together a career like that operating under the pressure and in the and you're right in that compressed time period that he had. Well, I only have one criticism of Jackie Robinson, mm-hmm. and the only the criticism I have of Jackie Robinson is that he got traded from the Dodgers after Branch Rickey left to my beloved Giants, and he, <laughs> and he retired. Uh, hey, come on, right. Jackie. come on, Jackie. Yeah, we, <laughs> <laughs> that's a great point. All right, that's fair. <laughs> I just have to say that's fair. All right, all right, all right. I mean, I mean, my loyalties are my loyalties. All right, now last last thing. Yeah. And I I asked George this uh, on the early interview, and he ducked it. So I'm not gonna let you duck the question. All right. All right. I know everybody, practically everyone, is on the Cubs bandwagon. Ooh. Who? Give me a prediction. You already know who I'm predicting. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's yeah. an even year, so I'm going with the Giants. So give me a prediction. My prediction is this. If the Brooklyn Dodgers were still a team, they would win. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, that's not to be confused with, the, with that team down in Los Angeles for whose that name is, I refuse no, to repeat. No, not to be confused with okay. that team in Los Angeles. All right, fine so enough. I have to tell you, Rachel Robinson is still a Dodgers fan. You know, a lot of those Dodgers fans uh, descended and they went to the New York Mets. But Rachel's still a Dodgers fan, which is pretty remarkable to me. Well, well, you know, it's interesting. uh, On that note, uh, my grandmother uh, was a diehard Dodger fan. Yeah. Um, um, even while, even when my grandfather, who, who sort of I, where I got baseball from, was a Giants fan, my grandmother was always a Dodger fan because of Jackie Robinson. He he was, it was it, he was like uh, so he was sort of like Adam Clayton Powell was every black person's congressman while he was in Harlem. That's how mm-hmm. I think Jackie Robinson was that way in the African American community in terms of sports. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, one of the best letters I ever read to Robinson came from uh, this woman who lived in the South. And she said that all of us come from the field uh, when the Dodgers are on and we sit around the radio uh, at the local uh, general store. And we just cheer for you, Jackie. It's just really meaningful for me wow. thinking about uh, these poor African-Americans who are working in the field. But they're waiting for that part of the day when they can leave that field go to the general store, sit around uh, the community radio, and be inspired. How sweet is that, Byron? No, that that is. You know, when you when you were saying that, um, it, it's it reminded me uh, Hemingway's "The Old Man in the Sea." Remember, mm. remember the mm-hmm. great, remember the great DiMaggio, and yeah, and that sort of gets, that sort of gets back to what we were what we were talking about earlier. That base how baseball can do that. And I think that's part of that why that, that opening day becomes. So important that mm-hmm. there's something about baseball that just sort of transcends society in a way that I, I don't think football or basketball or hockey can, can, can do. 
Well, you know, when Robinson shattered the barrier in April on April 15th, not only did that act transcend society, but it beckoned us forward, didn't it? It, it did. invited us to become better people, a better community, a better nation. And I think we have. I really do. I think, I think that great experiment, the grand experiment, uh, succeeded in many ways. Well, you, you know, um, it's interesting that Robinson's life outside of baseball mm-hmm. is almost as important as his life inside baseball. Is that fair? You know, Robinson himself said that what he did beyond the baseball diamond was far more important than what he did on the baseball diamond. How significant is that for those of us who know what he did on the baseball diamond? But yeah, he considered his work, his work in civil rights, his work with his family, his work with his community to be far much, to be far more important than anything else that he did. And that's why it's important for us to remember his civil rights legacy. And we'll see that in episode two of Ken Burns' documentary. I hope all your listeners really uh, gather around and watch that documentary. We will learn so many new and important things and inspiring things about Jackie Robinson's life as well. And Rachel Robinson stars in the documentary, and she is so delightful. I I hope they do as well. I I certainly will be. uh, Michael Long, I I can't thank you enough uh, for coming back to the public rally. I think we talked about this, and when you said you're doing— doing something on baseball, I said, I'll have you back before the season starts. So we, we made good on our promise, but um, not just the Jackie Robinson work, but the Byron Rustin work you've done, mm. the Thurgood Marshall work you've mm. done. And I, 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 um, I truly commend you and appreciate it all. Thank you so much for being on The Public Morality. You're a great man, great show, and uh, keep writing those awesome editorials. Thank you. Take care. Yeah, Byron. Coming up, my closing remarks. Next time on The Public Morality, we will discuss the past, the present, and the future of historical black colleges and universities with Rod Steigill, author of Where Everybody Looks Like Me, next time on The Public Morality. And now for my closing remarks. The state of North Carolina became the latest entry in that cyclical process that temporarily renders one an object of national embarrassment with a self-inflicted wound. The legislature passed a bill that was signed by Governor Pat McCrory during a special session demonstrating everything that is wrong when one conducts the people's business in a reactionary manner. The law, HB 2, prohibits local governments from passing anti-discrimination rules to grant protections to gay and transgender people. The North Carolina law demonstrates that it is indeed possible to moonwalk into the 20th century. The legislature wasted little time to convene in order to respond to an anti-discrimination ordinance recently approved by the city of Charlotte. Charlotte's local ordinance provided protections based on sexual orientation, gender expression, and gender identity, including letting transgender people use the public facilities that correspond with their gender identity, not gender at birth. Unlike the legislature, Charlotte took roughly a year to study the issue in order to arrive at a judicious decision, taking into consideration the well-being of all of its citizens. Given the haste with which the state bill was written, it's quite possible that many lawmakers did not read the bill before it was introduced during a special session. All legislation, regardless of forethought, potentially comes with unintended consequences. It is guaranteed, however, when legislation is birthed in a reactionary and ignorant manner. The legislature reacted to the outcome without any consideration as to how Charlotte reached this decision. It was ignorant because it was driven by suppositions that possessed no basis in fact. If this were an infomercial, now would be the time for me to say, but wait, there's more. In addition to the state prohibiting local municipalities from creating anti-discrimination policies, the legislature seized the opportunity to create an omnibus bill that also prohibited local governments from raising minimum wage levels above the state level for contractors with which it deals. What happened to the vaunted local control? Or is that merely the pablum that one utters when running for office? After signing the bill, the governor tweeted, The ordinance defied common sense allowing men to use women's bathrooms slash locker rooms, for instance. That's why I signed the bipartisan bill to stop it. The price for the governor's common sense may be a hefty one. 
there is already talk of moving the NBA All-Star game, which was slated for Charlotte next year. What if the NC2A decides to forego the state of North Carolina doing March Madness? North Carolina is on the cusp of becoming the Silicon Valley of the East. How will this law impact the state given that a number of tech companies have already expressed concern? But on the flip side, according to the Associated Press, Attorney General Roy Cooper, who's running against McCoy for governor in November, stated that his office won't defend this quote-unquote national embarrassment against an impending federal lawsuit. While I have problems with the law, just as Cooper has problems with the law, I'm also troubled by the position taken by Cooper. Isn't part of the attorney general's responsibilities to represent the state and federal court? Where does it state that he or she is at liberty to choose which laws they will defend? In this scenario, Cooper has one of two options, to adhere to his responsibilities as attorney general or resign. But placed in a historical context, the city of Charlotte and their ordinance and the legislature's response to it becomes another data point in the tension created by we the people. When those words were originally penned in the preamble of the Constitution, we the people, though not expressly stated, meant white male landowners. Throughout American history, each time a group outside the we applied for admittance, they were met with hostility. As America matures, the list of groups it can deem as other, somehow outside the norm, unqualified to be among the we and we the people, is dwindling. There remains a tragic space available for gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender brothers and sisters that it seems unwilling to forego. In far too many corridors of this nation, their humanity remains invisible. In the arduous pursuit of that more perfect union, change and discomfort must be seen as correlatives. It is impossible to have one without the other. The discomfort created caused the legislature to move the state to a time that predated cell phones while the city of Charlotte is moving forward. In such epic pursuits, rarely does the status quo emerge as the ultimate victor. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. And for those who would like to hear the archive broadcast, you can find those at our website, which is publicmorality.com. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced by WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. <laughs>